Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. Happy New Year. Thanks. That's my attempt to be chipper. (laughs) Welcome here. We're delighted you're here to worship with us. We do believe that it's going to be a good year. God is good regardless of the year, and we can trust in him. Amen. Uh, Father, we thank you and praise you for another day, Lord, for another year, for your goodness to us. No matter what, you're good. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. All right. I have two little places I'd like to contrast for you this morning. One is the town of Flagstaff, Maine. I know right now many of you are probably thinking about Flagstaff, Arizona. But this is Flagstaff, Maine. Or is it New Mexico? I don't know. Arizona, New Mexico. Which is it? Arizona. Okay, that's what I thought. Thank you. Flagstaff, Maine. And another place across the ocean. And so the first little story goes like this. Some years ago, a hydroelectric dam was to be built in New England across a large valley that contained the small town of Flagstaff, Maine. The valley was to be flooded and turned into the lake, and so the people of the town were going to be relocated. And as a result, all home improvements and repairs and upkeep and updates and everything were completely stopped. In the months before Flagstaff was then to be flooded, the previously nicely kept, beautiful, quaint little town fell into disrepair. Instead of being a pretty little town, it became an eyesore. What was the use of painting a house if it was to be covered with water in six months? Or why repair the whole village if it was to be wiped out? So week by week, the whole town became more and more bedraggled. Contrast that with this. In his book, Winning Life's Toughest Battles, psychologist Julius Segal wrote about the 25,000 American soldiers who were held uh, in Japanese prisoner of war camps during World War II. And this is what he says. He says, forced to exist under inhumane conditions, many of them died. Others, however, survived and eventually returned home. And there was no reason to believe there was any physical difference in the stamina of these two groups of soldiers The survivors, however, were different in one major respect. They confidently expected to be released someday. They confidently expected to be released someday. As described by Robin's readers in Holding On to Hope, they talked about the kinds of homes they would have, the jobs they would choose, even the kind of person they would marry, and they drew pictures on the walls to illustrate their dreams. Some even found ways to study subjects related to the kind of career they wanted to pursue. So what then was the difference between Flagstaff, Maine, and POWs in the pit of despair in World War II? Hope. That's exactly right. Hope. The only thing that separated these two was hope. The town had given up hope and the POWs who survived did not. Because where there is no faith in the future, says Halford Luckett, there is no power in the present. In other words, the theme that I'm going to try to get across through the book of First Peter, and especially today's message as we sort of kick it off and start our new study, is that... There's joy ahead. Here's a picture of that. Here's a graphic illustration of the journey we're on. Leave that up for a second. I'll talk about it for a second. Here's 
Here's what I'm hoping to communicate today. You see that yellow sign in the background. That's joy. But we're not there yet. We're at the very beginning of this journey. And there's a lot of twists and turns along the way. And as we worked on this graphic this week, I kept sending it back. And we traded it back and forth. And one of the things that we added were speed bumps. I don't know if you can see that or not. But there's not only supposed to be twists and turns. But there's supposed to be some pretty good speed bumps along the way too. But what you know from reading the book of First Peter is that there is joy ahead. It doesn't say the road is perfect. It doesn't say the road is smooth. It doesn't say it's easy. It doesn't say it's fast. It's all fun, wind in your face. No, it says there's joy ahead. Some people, when they read the book of First Peter, they think, oh, this is all about persecution. Because you hear that word come up over and over again, persecution and suffering and blah, blah, blah. But that's not really the theme. That's the thing you go through to get to the thing you want to, the place where you want to be. Like it's a large part of it. Maybe it's 80 or 90% of the time, but the goal is not that 80 or 90%. The goal is the end outcome, the joy that's ahead. And so it's like those prisoners of war. If, if you're stuck in that place, the goal is not to think about all the suffering you're going through at the moment, but the joy that's set before you, the thing that's coming later. And so there's twists and there's turns and there's bumps and there's all kinds of stuff along the way. But knowing that there's joy ahead means you have hope for the future. And that hope you have then gives you strength for today. If you don't have the hope for the future, there's no reason to go through all this baloney. I'll just do away with all the junk and be done with it now. I'm not worth it. But if there is something worth striving for, if there is hope, if there is joy ahead, if there is something worth it in the end, then yeah, we can continue to travel on. And so the sermon, I think we called it something like the pilgrim's hope. Why should we travel on? Why should we keep going? What is the point? It's because there's joy ahead. And that joy works itself back to hope for the future and strength for today. So here's the theme really that I'm trying to say to you today is that hope for the future means strength for today. And so what I'm going to do in today's message is a little bit of both in the sense that the text that you saw outlined in your out in your bulletin this morning is first Peter one, one through two. It's the opening. It's the greeting. And you're probably like, how is pastor Jeremy going to preach on greetings? This is, you know, Peter to the people in these different provinces. What a great sermon this is going to be. But what you're going to see is through these words, the apostle is sort of teeing up or kicking off his theme or his message. And so there's a couple big words in there that I'm going to pull out. Elect and exiles. And what those words are going to do is they're going to show us how this theme begins to weave itself throughout the book. So let me just give you the theme of First Peter. I just pulled out a bunch of different verses. I'm just going to read those. And then I'm going to show you how that theme begins to develop here in the first few verses as we begin this series in the book of 1 Peter. So the hope for the future means strength for the day. There's joy ahead. Here's what 1 Peter says in just a really fast flyby. At the very end, skipping to the end of the book, 1 Peter 5.10 says, God called you to share in his eternal glory. This is your great calling. This is your excitement. This is what you're looking forward to. God's glory. We don't know how to say it any other way because God is just glorious and there's something beautiful and wonderful coming. And we're not there yet, but it's going to be great. God has called you to this eternal glory. And therefore, now we live, First Peter 1, 3, with great 
expectation. We are looking forward to, 1 Peter 1, 6 says, the fact that there is wonderful, wonderful joy ahead. Even though you endure many trials for a little while, this is not pie in the sky fluff. This acknowledges real life. The purpose of those trials, however, is that they show that your faith, your belief in this promise of God that there is joy ahead is genuine. And that faith that you have, that little seed, that inkling, that hint is being refined and tested and purified as by fire. It's fire. Amen. It's fire. It's hot. But fire does its job. It purifies. It refines. It sharpens. It it makes us what we want to be. We don't want to be that that undeveloped element. We want to be the purified one that's beautiful, far more precious, this text says, than gold. Do you believe that? Do you actually, do I actually, I don't want to even just say you, I don't want to say me. Do you actually believe that faith is more valuable than gold? Because gold is pretty valuable right now. I don't know if you've watched, but when I was in business school, my teacher said, Don't ever invest in gold. It's just this commodity. It's all over the place. You know, pick a good, you know, diversified, whatever, blah, 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 blah. Don't do gold. And then I graduated. I didn't do gold. Man, do I wish I did. I mean, all this uncertainty and craziness in the world and that stuff is valuable. But the Bible says our faith, this thing we can't touch, this thing we can't see is more valuable than gold. Do you believe that your faith is actually more valuable than Fort Knox? That's valuable. Peter says it is. This is what will get you through the trials, not the gold, but the faith. And so, therefore, 1 Peter 4.19 says, keep on, keep on, keep on keeping on, doing what's right, and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. Gold might, your health might, your friends might, your family might, everything else will fall through, but God will never, ever, ever, ever fail you. Therefore, trust yourselves to him, for he will never fail you. Look, church, you have a great future ahead of you. God has called you to share in his eternal glory. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. That's worth it. That's hard, but it's good. Therefore, the message of First Peter is like this. It says that there's joy ahead. Yeah, there's a lot of suffering and trials. Don't ever forget that. But the joy ahead means that there's hope for the future and therefore strength for today. Remember that road trip graphic. You can download that at our website. So that's the message of First Peter. Now let's see then how that moves itself even through the introductory words of this book. It's a greeting. It's a to and a from. But there's stuff there that Peter is teeing up for the rest of the section. So First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. This is what we're looking at today. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn along or follow along and turn there. He starts out just like a normal greeting. I put the from in brackets because that's not there. That's understood. But the to is there. And he starts out like this. It's like from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's the from. To who? Here's the two words we're going to jump on today. The elect exiles. 
of the dispersion in a bunch of different provinces and basically modern day Turkey. This is modern day Turkey. It was hard to be a Christian there then. It's hard to be a Christian there now. This is who he's writing to. And he says, according to, now here's some interesting things. You see the whole Trinity at work here in verse two, the whole Trinity, every single person of the Trinity, the foreknowledge of God, the father, God's knowledge, his plan, the sanctification of the spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He makes us holy. He's part of that refining and for the obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood, the one who purifies us. That's how we get grace and peace. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So in two verses, there's all kinds of theology and depth and truth being unpacked there. And really, I just want to focus in on the two words in the next few moments here. The exiles and the elect. The exiles and the elect. So here's the outline I'll follow for the next 20 minutes. Exiles and elect. And we'll make these words uh, hopefully come to life, not only in the text, but in our lives as well. So first of all, there's joy ahead, exiles, exiles. The apostle calls us exiles. We are exiles. Now, I know as uh, an American that we don't really like to think of ourselves that way. We think of ourselves, you know, in a, in a very patriotic sort of sense. We are citizens. You know, we're free. I'm glad I lived in Canada for a while. It was fine. But I'm glad to be back in the United States. I mean, I, I sense my freedom. The fact that I can move from state to state with no hindrance whatsoever. That I can just get up and go. That we got Amazon Prime and everything else. And there's no ch- extra charges and no extra regulations and blah, 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 blah. It's just like open. Our country is so free and open. We take pride in our citizenship and our heritage and all these good things about America. But the thing is, is even being Americans in one of the greatest places in the whole world, we're exiles. But this is not our home, however comfortable or uncomfortable we may be. The point is, there's this longing in your heart that should tell you we're not there yet. We're always longing for something more. My little boys, they're not here right now. They'll be here in a minute. They're always wanting more football cards. And my wife's like, when are you going to stop? I don't know. That's a good question. There's always more. There's always more. Next year, there will be a whole new batch. Can't ever have too many football cards. Yes, you can. And there's things for me, too. And I don't want to tell you what those are right now. But. Look, we long for something. We have this desire, and all of us are chasing after these desires, and yet they're desires that are never fulfilled. They're just there, and they kind of rejuvenate themselves. And it should tell you, like C.S. Lewis says, this is what it means to be an exile. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. A man feels sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world will satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. None of my earthly pleasures satisfy it. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. That If that is so, then I must take care on the one hand, listen to this, never to despise or be unthankful for the earthly blessings 
never despise them, never shun them. But on the other hand, never mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind or a copy or an echo or a mirage. I must keep alive within myself the desire for my true country. Which I shall not find until after death and I must never let it go or get snowed under or turned aside. I must make the main object of life to press on towards that other country and to help others do the same. That's what it means to be in exile. That's in mere Christianity. If you want to read C.S. Lewis's great work there, it's like this reality that we're not home yet. We're not there, but we're on this journey and it feels like, you know, there's family and emotional associations and all these things that remind us of something great and good, but it's just never enough. And we want that fulfillment. We want that big Christmas. We want that giant banquet. We want the perfect reality, but we can never just get it because we're exiles. This world is not our home. Mercy Me has a beautiful new song. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's called Almost Home. And it is so, so down this down this path. It is great. But here's the thing. Peter is emphasizing to people, yeah, there's joy ahead. If you think the joy is now, you've missed it. You're in exile. You don't belong here. If you think you'll be satisfied, no wonder you're miserable because you won't. Satisfaction is up ahead. Ultimate satisfaction comes later. There's joy ahead. And that's actually an encouragement that we're in exile, that we belong somewhere, that we are on a journey. We are on a path. We're pilgrims. We Americans are still pilgrims. We're journeying by grace through faith, following God to the promised land. And this North American continent is not it. It's pretty cool. It's beautiful. Don't get me wrong, but this is not the promised land. There's joy ahead. There's an eternal future. There is a home. There is a hope. But we're not there yet. We're exiles. So hope for the future means strength for the day. Number one, we are exiles. We don't belong here, but we do belong somewhere. We do have a belonging. We will feel like we totally fit in and don't stick out and make sense and everything's right, but it's not here. We're exiles. Number one, exiles. That's how he tees up this thing. He says we're exiles. Number two, he says we are elect. Elect. Those who have been in church for a while know that term probably because it's one of the great in-house Christian debates. What does it mean that God knows everything? Does he cause everything? Or how much is he involved in our salvation? Are we choosing? Is he choosing? Is a little sum, 80-20, both half and half? What? How does it work? And unfortunately, the Bible doesn't really tell us. (laughs) At least I don't think it does in that way. It doesn't say, spell it out. But what it does do is it does mention the doctrine of election. In fact, here's a slide which shows you some of the statistics. Now note, I didn't do an exhaustive study. All I did was look up the main noun and the main verb. Okay, so there could be all kinds of other little forms and derivatives and blah, blah, blah. But this was enough to show me that this word elect, which you get two different Greek words, the verb is eklegomai, and the noun is eklektos. And what you get, ek is out of, and um, you're, you're being called out of, or ek is a preposition, it means out, like outside or beyond. You're being called out, selected, chosen. And 
that is a Bible doctrine. Regardless of what faith camp you're in, you're going to have to do something with that. You can't say the Bible doesn't teach election. The Bible does teach election. Now, how you want to interpret that, you can argue about it. But 21 times this verb occurs, 23 times the noun occurs. It's all over the place. Angels are elect. Jesus is elect. We're elect. I mean, there is elect over and over and over again. And here's the idea is that in Ephesians 1.4, it says very clearly that Paul is talking about God. And he said, God chose. This is that word. This is that word elect. God chose us in him when just today or when, you know, no, before the foundation of the world, that's when God elected or chose. Now, why just for kicks? No. So that there's a purpose in this so that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So what do I want to point out then as we talk about election, however you interpret it, this mysterious, controversial Christian doctrine, election, the God's choosing of his people, is that the way in which the Bible portrays it is often not the way we discuss it. Okay, I want to write that down for the next service. You can write it down too. And the way in which the Bible portrays it is this. I'm going to give you four ways and um, make those pop, and you'll see that here in just a second. Here's what it means. So the big picture sermon is that there's joy ahead. Now we're pulling out this little word and kind of diving in. Don't lose the forest for the trees. This is not the sermon, but this does help you understand this word. Um, Election, when it is mentioned in the Bible, is basically addressed, keep this up here for a second, in four different ways. Number one, it's loving. It's loving. Always, the Bible is talking about God's incredible love for us when he talks about election. Number two, it's specific. It's not random, but instead it's purposeful and it's pastoral. And I'll explain each one of those here in just a second. Election is loving, specific, purposeful, and pastoral. Write that down. Loving, specific, purposeful, and pastoral. I think that's not the way we discuss it. We get into it and we're like, Oh, well, does that mean God doesn't choose some people? Maybe he just likes to damn people to hell because that's the kind of mean God he is. I mean, we go the exact opposite way that the Bible takes this doctrine. The Bible takes it in a very positive direction, and we just disregard everything the text says and start using our own logic to come to our own conclusions. That's not the right way to do it. The right way is to allow the text to drive us and then let the mystery and let the questions remain. I'm mean, sure if you want to argue about it, fine, have fun, but be nice. And here's the thing. The first thing is it says that election is loving. We just read that in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Don't miss that. The last two words are very important. We debate about which verse they go to and this and that. But here's the thing. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He chose us in love. God loves us. It's the most loving thing he's ever done to choose us. If he didn't choose us, he doesn't have to send his son. There's no point. 
There are no redeemed. There are no ecclesia. There are no called out. There are no elect. Why send your son to die the most gruesome death possible if you're not going to save anybody? The reason he had to send his son is because he chose us. And therefore, he's going to complete what he planned to do. So it's a loving thing. He chose us on purpose. This is how I'll describe it to my boys. I'll say, hey, look, this comes from an illustration book by Michael Green. It says there's two teams. And there was a boy, there was one boy who everyone knew did not have any athletic ability. He was terrible. He was just out there because he's out there. Everyone made fun of him. He had a hard time. Every time he and his friends would play some game, he was always the last to be chosen. Well, one day, two new fellas came out to play with them and were allowed to be team captains, but they were older. The first team captain chose the boy who had always been chosen last. Why? Because they were brothers. He loved his brother. And so it is with Christ and us. Christ calls us his brother and he chooses us to be on his team. And it's not because we're good. It's not because we're amazing. It's not because there's anything redeemable in us whatsoever. It's because Christ in love chose us. Got nothing to do with our own ability whatsoever. Number one, election is loving. It is so loving. God actually chose us. He didn't have to choose us. Why? But he did out of love. He chose us. He pulled us out. He selected us. And not just like he closed his eyes and reached in the bag and like, oh, look who I have. What do you know? No, no, no. God's election is specific. Think about this. Abraham, who was Abram, some random pagan idol worshiper in the middle of Babylon, Ur. Boom, you. Why Abram? Oh, God chose Abram specifically. Then the nation of Israel. Why Israel? Because they're the most powerful, the most beautiful, the most whatever. No, God reminds them they're not frequently. I didn't choose you because you were lovable. I didn't choose you because you're good. I didn't choose you because you're strong or powerful. I chose you because I chose you. And you'll leave that to me. God chose Abraham. He chose Israel. He chose who? This random shepherd boy, the youngest, the smallest, out in the field watching the sheep while his big tough brothers were off fighting the battle. He chose David to be the messianic line to raise up Jesus, the ultimate elect, the chosen one. God chose Abraham. God chose Israel. God chose David. God chose Jesus. God chose you and me. God chose you specifically. If you're listening to this message and you're a believer in Jesus, that means God specifically chose you. And if you're not and you're hearing this, you should become one, and then you know you are. Specific. It is loving, it is specific. Number three, it's purposeful. Once you realize that, once you take that in, you begin to meditate on that and digest it, you're like, wow, God loves me? God chose me? I'm not... LeBron James, I'm not Bill Gates, I'm not whatever. Why did God choose me? And what it does is it motivates us, first of all, to humility. Like, oh, I have no idea why he chose me. I'm not the best player. Secondly, it gets us confidence. Hey, God chose us. This is not like my thing. He did it. 
And then it begins, as you can see on my face, to give us joy. And that joy bubbles forth into praise. And that praise then shows up in faithful living and obedience and holiness is the result. And therefore, again, First Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? So that we could stay in our dirt and our mud and be yucky? No. But so that we could be holy and blameless before him in love. This is the purpose of your election. It is moving you towards holiness. It is moving you in the right direction. So it is loving. It is specific. It's purposeful. And it's pastoral. It's very pastoral. It's very comforting. You probably hear me quote this verse a lot. This is Philippians 1.6. And I really like it because it reminds me that no matter how much I mess up, God's still in control. And it says this. Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He's not just going to be like, oh, I started this project, but never mind. It's too much. (laughs) I had no idea what I was getting into with them. They are a lot more stuff than I anticipated. Let me just pull back a little and choose someone else. Not the way it works. He knew you before the foundation of the world, before he chose you. And therefore, because of that, he knows what he's getting into. And his purpose is to complete his project. And therefore, we can trust him for that. And that gives us comfort. That gives us hope and joy. That He's not done. He's not finished. He's not given up. But he's going to do a good job with this thing. I like to feel a completed project. My kids, I can see when they're proud of a coloring page they give to me. Well, look at this. Yes, you did a really good job. There's satisfaction in that. God is going to be satisfied. He is satisfied when he brings us to completion. He feels good about our election because he knows he will complete his project. There's great satisfaction in that. It is pastoral. It's comforting. Look, as we wait, 1 Corinthians 1, 7 through 9 says, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, this is a big theme throughout 1 Peter, he will sustain you to the end. As you wait for Jesus, he sustains you. As you wait on him, he sustains you. That's a good deal. Why? Because 1 Thessalonians says, he who calls you is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. Our promise rests on the faithfulness of God. And he will surely do it. Therefore, when you feel that, when you understand it's loving, it's specific, it's purposeful, it's pastoral, it's going to get done. It gives you comfort and joy. You respond just like Paul does in those same verses I was reading. And you're like, verse Ephesians 1, 3, blessed be God and Father. Blessed be their God and Father, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with faith that is more valuable than gold. With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. He didn't say in damnation he predestined. In love he predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to not the random, you know, whatever, roll the dice, but the purpose of his will. This is the deal. We are elect and we are exiles. We are exiles. We're not home yet, but we're chosen. We have a purpose. We're going somewhere. There's joy ahead. This is not random. God is going to finish this thing. We are elect. We are exiles. And that's the message of First Peter as he looks at our suffering, our misery, the world we're surrounded by, the opposition we'll face. He says, don't worry, pilgrim. Why travel on? Keep going. 
Because there's joy ahead. There's wonderful, wonderful joy ahead. Don't quit. Don't give up no matter what. You are in exile, so don't think you're at home. You're not, but you are chosen to make it there, and God will make sure you do. And so understand, hope for the future means strength for today. That's where we get our strength, is our hope in the future. God has called you, church, to share in his eternal glory. Therefore, there is wonderful, wonderful joy ahead. Now we live with great expectation. So keep on doing what's right. Don't quit, church. Keep going. Trust your lives to God who created you, and he will never fail you. For there is wonderful, wonderful joy ahead. That's the Bible. I'm just reading it to you. That's his word. Again, C.S. Lewis, this is how he closes his Narnia series. Even if you're an adult, read these books. They're so great. I'll give you the ending of the series, but it still won't spoil it for you. But to these travelers, Aslan turns to them and says, you do not look yet as happy as I mean you to be. Lucy says, well, we're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you've done it so many times before, sent us back into our own world so often. Aslan said, no fear of that. Have you not guessed? And their hearts leaped with a wild, wild hope that rose within them. Aslan said softly, there's a railway accident. Your mother and your father and all of you are as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. As he speak, spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I can't even write them. And for this, the end of all stories, we can truly say, that they live most happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning. The real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one. The great story which no one on earth has ever read goes on forever and ever in which every chapter is better than the one before. The beginning. There's joy ahead. Hope for the future means strength for today. Father, we thank you and praise you for your perfect goodness to us. What a beautiful story you're writing, Lord, and I don't understand it. It's a mystery. Certainly suffering and struggle along the way, and uh, it's, it's your work, not ours. And yet we get to be a part of it and share in your glory with you, and we thank you for that. Lord, we praise you for who you are, and we just ask that we would be who you want us to become. In Jesus' name.
Amen.